Dear Father, thank you, Lord, as always, for the place that we have beneath our feet to meet. Father, we are thankful that for years you've let us be here, and for years you've given us a faithful mission to accomplish. Father, we, we also confess that perhaps in the things that we've done and the ways we've done it, we've, we've left some things on the table, as it were. We've left some opportunities unmet. We want to meet those in the future. We ask, Father, you guide us in how to best do that. But, Father, in the meantime... We don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, as they say. We do not want to walk away from those things that are so important to you that we have consistently done here, like teaching your word. And we thank you, Father, for that consistency. You've made it possible, and you've kept it going here. Lord, as we go back into your word this morning, then, what I pray for, Father, is both faithfulness and patience. Faithfulness to what it says, commitment to what it means, uh, diligence to carry it out. And then, Father, patience to understand things that are difficult and patience to accept things that may be different than we've heard. Patience to recognize, Father, that in time you correct all misunderstandings and bring everything into alignment with the counsel of your will. And we want to keep moving, Father, in that direction. Let that happen again this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, as we began our study in Ephesians, you may remember I opened with some background on the history of the church and the history of the city of Ephesus particularly. I said at that time that the church of Ephesus was located in a very wealthy place. Ephesus was a very wealthy city. And with wealth came a lot of temptations. So if you were a Christian in Ephesus, you might be tempted, for example, to compete for the prestige and the wealth of the city, to, to join the rat race, if you will, of the society around you. And if you were a church meeting in that place, then the church itself might be tempted to measure its success by the standards that were embraced by the culture. Success of wealth and reach and size or whatever. In short, if you lived in Ephesus and you were a Christian, you faced temptations to live like Ephesus and to think like Ephesus. Over time, those temptations conspired, as it turned out, to lead this church in this city, into, quote, leaving their first love, Jesus said in the book of Revelation. We know that they respected the word of God. Paul tells us this elsewhere. They couldn't tolerate false teachers. Jesus said that as well. And I don't think there's any reason to believe that the church at Ephesus was idle, that they were lazy. They were at work, no doubt. But, according to what Jesus said, they weren't working on the right things. Maybe they drifted away from the mission of serving Christ's Name and his purpose because they had better things they could do. Maybe they were too busy doing social works or personal investment of one kind or another in their life, in their business, in their home. Or maybe they just got busy with hobbies. Maybe they got distracted by personal relationships. Who knows, right? There's a million ways we get off track. But as you look at Paul's parting words to this church when he met with the elders on his way to Rome in Acts chapter 20, we read this at once past, but I'm going to read one verse out of that again. This is the last thing we have Paul recorded to say to the church in Ephesus. He says, In everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner you must help the weak and remember the words of Jesus Christ that he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. So Paul's final words to the church admonish them to seek personal sacrifice over the pursuit of wealth. And I think what Paul had reason to believe about this church is that in the future, they would decide that receiving things for themselves was better than making things available to someone else. And obviously the concern includes money. That's the first thing we think of when we think of to give and to receive. But I think it runs deeper than that. The problem here is one of works also. 
Jesus said this church would leave its first love. And as I defined that term in the first morning of our teaching of this book, I told you at that time that I think it meant both leaving behind a love for Christ evidenced in a love of serving Christ. So we know our use of money reflects our heart. The Bible tells us that. Jesus says you can't serve both God and money. But how you spend your time is just as powerful a measure of what you love as is your spending. Because in many ways, friends, your time is actually more valuable than your money. Right? There's always more money. You always get more money. I mean, if you make it your goal in life to get more money, you can do some things to get more money. There's always that opportunity. But there is a finite amount of time in your life. There is only 86,400 seconds in a day. There are only 365 days in a year. And you only get so many years to live on this earth. And when all of that time is gone, it is gone. So when you're stingy with your time, you're actually being stingy with the most powerful and important resource you have. That's why Paul has gone out of his way, I think, to speak so forcefully in this letter to this church in chapters 1 and 2 about the origins of their faith. You know, that's the conversation we've been on now for some time, that Paul's been on. Paul said that we are in Christ because God did a work to make us alive in Christ. And he gave us saving faith. He brought us into a new eternal future with Christ. And therefore, we will have what Christ has received And we learned that all of this was done on our behalf by God's power, not by our own. So that begs the question and actually leads us into the next part of Paul's teaching. And that question is this. What do you owe a God who has saved you and has given you so much by no account of your own and by no effort of your own? What do you owe a God who's done that for you? Do you not owe him your very life? I mean, is there a limit to what he deserves in response? Paul says this in Romans chapter 12, 1. He says, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God. And then he adds, and this is your spiritual service of worship. The Lord expects every believer to respond to the grace that you have received in the life you have as a Christian for the glory of God. That's it. Everyone's life takes a different path. I know. Everyone in here has got a different story. All our family lives will be a little different. Our career pursuits will be a little different. Our hobbies, all of the things that define us will be a little different, one from another. But friends, as Christians, we all have one thing in common. And that is that we are all called to serve a Lord who has asked us to be His hands and feet in this world. So no matter what else in our lives may be different, and no matter what else you may choose to do on a personal level, you have an expectation out of Scripture to give your life in service to Christ, whether as a vocation, as I have done, or as a volunteer, as someone who serves Christ in between the other things we do in life. So no matter what else you do in life, that's an expectation. And here's the equation that Scripture gives us. Christ gave His life for us, So now we give our lives to Him. That's the equation. He should remain our first love. He should remain our priority. And that brings us to verse 10 of chapter 2. So Paul, having explained how you came to the salvation you have, which is to say by God alone, now he turns it around and he gives, I guess, the so what of this conversation. Now that you know how you were saved, so what do you do with it? And he says in verse 10, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works, which God prepared beforehand, so that we would walk in them. I won't shock too many people to hear this is the only verse we're going to cover today, but 
There is a lot here. And I'm going to start at the beginning. Now, remember in the preceding two verses, Paul just explained you're saved by His grace. You've received your salvation as a gift. God even manifested that salvation in us through a faith that was also a gift. We did absolutely nothing to bring about our salvation. God is sovereign, we would say, in salvation. He stepped into our lives. He forever altered your path. You were on a one-way trip to hell. He stepped into your life. He moved you onto a new path. He brings you out of death and into life. He saved you when you weren't even looking for Him. That's what we learned in chapters 1 and 2. And He did it because, Paul said, He was rich in mercy and because He loved us. And now Paul says something very interesting. Paul says, God did these things for us because He desired that we would glorify Him through our good works. He begins by saying we are His workmanship. Created in Christ so that we would walk in good works. Let's understand what he's saying. We are his workmanship. I love this word in Greek. There's only two times it appears in the New Testament here and then once in Romans. In Romans, it's in chapter 1 when Paul is talking about the creation, the stars, the universe. That is God's workmanship. The only other time it's used is to describe you and me. In both cases, it refers to the masterwork of a craftsman. I want you to think of like a delicate piece of furniture made by Chippendale or a marble statue or a fine painting painted by Michelangelo. Those things reflect glory upon the one who made them because they testify to the genius and the vision and the artistry of that master craftsman. Paul says, we too are the exquisite product of a master craftsman. And friends, just to be clear, he's not talking about the physical creation of your body. That too is obviously a masterwork. But that's not what he's referring to here. He's talking about the spiritual nature that he birthed in you by faith in Jesus Christ. Because remember, friends, you and I were born dead in our trespasses. We were not a thing of spiritual beauty when we came into this world. Paul says we were children of wrath. We were like the devil himself. But by His grace, Paul says, He's created in us something new and beautiful, spiritually speaking. That's why the Bible calls it being born again. It's like truly starting over. And in that new form, we now have the potential to reflect glory upon God. But that only stands, of course, if we use that new nature. If we live in that new nature, if we're going to fulfill our purpose, we've got to show the world the work that He just did. How do you show off God's handiwork? How do you show off that new spirit, that living spirit in you that has the potential to obey the word? Because after all, spirit is invisible. How do I show that? And how do you communicate to the world that he brought you into a new life with a new eternal future? The future is hidden. The kingdom isn't here yet. How do you show that? And he's given you a faith that manifests his grace, but faith in the heart can't be seen. How are these things that are inherently invisible to be used to show off his handiwork. I want you to imagine if Michelangelo carved the statue of David and put it in his garage. How do you appreciate the skill of a craftsman if you can't see his handiwork? That's the fundamental problem. And Paul gives us the answer. He says, God's miraculous work in us, the spirit change that he's made in us, is to be seen and appreciated by good works. Good works. Now, we've discussed works here in previous weeks. Remember when we were talking about salvation? We learned that a human work is anything you can do or say or even think. And we learned earlier that those kinds of things, those works, have nothing to do with your salvation because the works of an unbeliever are just filthy garments as far as God is concerned. So it doesn't help us in our cause of salvation to be focused on works. Works get you nothing. You're saved by grace alone, Paul says. No one's going to be able to boast. But now we're learning that good works aren't irrelevant. 
to our salvation. That's one of the, the classic misconceptions of works. You know, the, the Protestant Reformation was so good about presenting to the world the true gospel again, having rescued it from the heresy of the Catholic Church, and said, no, it is not by works, it's only by faith. But there have been some along the, the course of history in the church who have gone too far down that same road and have come to the conclusion that works just don't matter at all. Paul's here to tell us that's wrong. Works are the way we bring glory to the God who saved us, as he just said. And if so, then it stands to reason that the kinds of things that we now think or say or do following our salvation should be different, hear that, different than the things we thought or said or did prior to salvation. Because if we're to bring glory to the Father by showing off the craftsmanship of what He's done internally in the Spirit, then you have to reflect that change by a change in those works. Right? So at this point, you may be tempted to think, well, okay, fine. Let's just get busy. Let's just start doing something. Let's just do works. Let's get going. Everybody just go out and do a work. And we're somehow fulfilling the purpose of Scripture if we do that. Let's just start acting differently. Let's just talk differently. Let's adopt Christian lingo. Let's go to church more often. That's sometimes where our brain goes when we hear this, this thought from Scripture that you have to do good works now because you want to glorify God. Well, not so fast, friends. Because acting like Christians is not doing good works. At best, it's pretending. At worst, it's hypocrisy. And it's the farthest thing from good works that you can imagine. It's, in a way, the equivalent of trying to earn your salvation, only now it's sanctification. The Lord said you can't earn salvation because your works don't please Him apart from faith. Likewise, you cannot bring Him glory by trying to work your own works of sanctification. It's still your own plan again, and God's not going to be glorified by someone's own thinking or planning. God brings us the faith that saves us, and, Paul says, He brings us the works that please Him. Paul says the good works that we do, to bring God glory are works that he says were prepared beforehand by God so that we might walk in them. Now, throughout this book, we've been confronted, and I would acknowledge maybe challenged, for some of us certainly, by the concept of the sovereignty of God. Because after all, in just what we've studied so far, we've learned that God predestined us to salvation. And that beyond that, he says we were chosen in Christ Jesus to receive what we have. And that even our faith is not of ourselves. And that revelation, I would imagine, makes us uncomfortable, or at least some of us. It may disagree with what you've been taught. Or perhaps those concepts just seem contrary to what you've concluded as you've read through the Bible on your own. It's an unsettling experience, to say the least, when you learn that you didn't get the full story the first time, or that your own understanding of the Bible was somehow incomplete. No one likes that feeling, right? It may even cause you to doubt a little bit what you're hearing now, or what you've heard in past weeks. I know the feeling, friends, because I was there with you. I was once there, and I compare the experience of, of how I came to appreciate the sovereignty of God as the Bible reveals it. I compare that to someone standing inside a circle drawn in the dirt. I want you to imagine like a playground. You took a stick and you just drew a circle around your body on the ground. And in a sense, that's what we all do. We draw this circle around ourselves and we tell ourselves that everything outside that circle is God's. He controls the world. He controls the forces of nature. He controls the heavenly realms. He controls and directs nations and kingdoms. And we read all that in the Bible and we get it. We're fine with that, right? God's in control. We tell ourselves that. He brings all things to good in the end. We hear that. And then we tell ourselves, though, that, that everything inside our little circle, 
Everything inside that circle, well, that belongs to us. Why? Well, because God gave it to us. Because he, he gave us free will, and our will has some range of, of expression, and we can do what we want within our little circle, and that's fine. We tell ourselves, well, we're in control of who we are. We're in control of where we live. We're in control of what we do. We run our lives. We make our mistakes. And perhaps some of us have also come to believe that we decide whether or not to accept Jesus. That's part of our circle. Because God left it there for us. That's what we tell ourselves. We know God is all-powerful. We tell ourselves God has, has all the control. But then we say God has given these things to us. And then he stays out of the way. He respects our free will. And then we turn to Scripture. And then we read things like this. Proverbs 16, 9. The mind of man plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. Or Proverbs 19.21, Many plans are in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. Oh, that's sort of unsettling, isn't it? We read those and suddenly we realize that, well, even the plans that we make and we think are our own are being controlled by the sovereignty of God. So that what we plan somehow, in the mystery of God's will, falls in alignment to what he always wanted in the first place. We didn't sense that control. It's not like I walk around feeling like I'm a puppet, right? Somehow that's not my perception, but the reality of what Scripture says is He's so powerful, He can direct our thoughts and our actions to accomplish His desires without us even knowing that He's doing it. It just feels like we made a decision. All right, so I learned this, so I erased my circle. I draw it again, though, because I need my circle, so I draw it a little closer to myself. You see how we do that? I mean, we relinquish a little of the control because Scripture makes us do it, but we hold on to whatever we can keep, and we're still certain that God must share His control, at least to some degree, right? I mean, we're getting a little uncomfortable, but, but we feel some safety in the fact that I've got a perch here. And then I go on reading the Bible. I read, for example, Joseph's life. How his brothers conspired to kill him by sending him into Egypt, and later... As that story plays out, when Joseph meets his brothers again in Egypt, this is what he says in Genesis 50:18. Then his brothers also came and fell down before him, and they said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Well, then I realized, well, gee, even the evil things that men do by their free will... Nevertheless, those evil things fall under God's sovereign control. Even the enemy and what he would do is still according to God's plan. Well, now I've got to erase my circle. But I make it just small enough that I can sort of stand on one foot inside it. Rhetorically speaking, this is how I start to, to work my will and God's will as I understand Scripture. I keep looking for somewhere that I can stand. Then I read Paul telling us, I'm chosen before the foundations of the earth to receive a salvation brought to me by the Spirit of God. And as I erase my smaller and smaller circle and I keep trying to redraw it, I eventually find myself on such a small patch of earth, I wonder, what's the point? I mean, really, what am I trying so hard to preserve? Why do I need this patch that I call mine and not God's? Where does that come from? And for some Christians, even those who would accept a high view of God's sovereignty, there comes a point, even in this conversation of good works, when we have, unbeknownst to ourselves, kept a piece of earth that we call works, good works. And we tell ourselves, even though I know God brought me salvation and He controls everything and the stars and, and the nations of the world are all under His command, nevertheless, what I do to serve Him is entirely my own making. Eh. 
Because even that, friends, is appointed for you. Paul tells us we were chosen for certain works. And he says those good works were ones that he has prepared for us. Now Paul's explaining something very foundational, very simple, but very revolutionary, that God has determined for each of us beforehand, meaning before we became a believer, what works, what good works he will accept from us. You can't make up your own good works. You can't decide for yourself what God wants you to do. You either follow Him in doing the works He's prepared for you to do, to walk in, as Paul says, or you just go your own way. And that means, friends, simply put, if you are doing your own version of good works, they're not good at all, because by definition, they're disobedience. Let me explain how this works. I'm going to use another analogy here. I love analogies, and here's a second one that works for me. I want you to imagine that after church today, you go to lunch, at a cafeteria restaurant, we have our own versions of that locally, but everybody's got a different one, different places in the world. But they're all the same, right? You walk in, you get a tray, you get in line, and you walk down the buffet of all the food, right? I want you to imagine you go to one of those today. And by the way, one of the reasons we love these places, it has less to do with the quality of the food and more to do with what? You can see it. You know, you can see it before you order it. And you know, oh, that doesn't look so good today. I'm passing on that one, right? But you can see what you want. We like to see our food. As you walk into that restaurant, friends, all of that food was prepared beforehand for you, right? You can't go in there and order off the menu. Try walking into Luby's and talk to the manager. I'd like to order off your menu, please. I have a special... What? There's no menu. I mean, not really. They just have the food plopped out there in stainless steel tubs for you. Pick what you want. That's it. Okay? Now, you do have a measure of control in this. Absolutely. You can choose. You can choose what you want. And your choices are pretty wide, right? But they are limited. You can only choose from what's been prepared beforehand for you. You can take a few things, or if you have a real appetite, you can take a lot of things, and the more you take, the more you're going to experience what that restaurant has to offer. You could say, the better you'll know the restaurant. Our will, then, has a place in the process. It determines what we select, but your will, friends, cannot create options that are not already there. Now, imagine if I decided I didn't like what I saw in that buffet. So what I do is I go out to my car and I get a sack lunch that I had already prepared. I bring it in and I just sit down at one of the tables in the the restaurant and I open my sack lunch and I start to eat my food in their restaurant. How does that go, do you think? I suspect the restaurant management is not going to be particularly pleased with my choice. They're going to disapprove my choice. They're going to tell me I can't bring my own food into their restaurant. If I don't like what they have to offer, go somewhere else, right? That's what I'd probably hear. I think that analogy accurately reflects what Paul means here when he says we were created in Christ to accomplish good works that God has prepared beforehand for us. God knew that you would be brought into salvation before the foundations of the earth, right? So in that day, the Spirit came to you. And he gave you new life. He gave you the gift of faith. You woke to the truth of the gospel. By your faith, you confessed, etc., etc. It brought you to a point now of new life. And with that new life comes a new mission, Paul says. It's a mission to reflect glory upon the handiwork of the Master. And God's sovereignty, we are now learning, does not end at the doorstep of your salvation. It continues on even into the life of sanctification that you're going to lead, the good works that you're going to do. The menu of good works has been set for you. Because those works, God has predetermined, are the best way you individually can glorify Him and serve His purpose in bringing both blessing to yourself and to those you serve. God foreknew all of that. You don't get to define your own path of good works, in other words, but you do get to choose which of those He has prepared you're going to take up and you're going to go do. 
So I like to say it this way. You have a buffet of good work opportunities in front of you. And you are to take from that buffet throughout the course of your entire life as a Christian. Your ticket to the buffet was your faith. No, no one gets in line without faith. But faith now has given you the opportunity to serve him in ways he has predetermined. So I want you to imagine as you look at this buffet of good works, there's, there's stainless steel bins full of prayer and service and teaching and counsel and financial giving and all manner of things that one might do in service to Christ to the glory of his name for the benefit of the people of God and to the world. Those works have been prepared for you and they're unique to you, at least in the sense of opportunities, specific moments, specific places and times. They're unique to you in part because God in his sovereign omniscience knows what best fits your abilities, your spiritual gifts, your place and time in history. And I might add, and this is probably the most important one, he knows what kinds of spiritual opportunities, what kinds of good works will best suit the purpose of sanctifying you, of taking you out of your comfort zone, of moving you out of a place in which sin is an ever-present part of your life and you take it for granted and moving you to some place where you can't tolerate it anymore because it's been shown to you in a new and better way, some way that causes you to, to acknowledge, I need to be a better person. I was using some examples in the Sunday school class this morning when we were talking about a similar topic in Romans. And I mentioned that in my case, when I was young and in my walks, I, I still had this problem I had come into faith with of, of sometimes using some bad language. And I'm sure I'm the only one in here that's ever done that. You can look at me with shame, I know. And, and you know those moments come, right? The moment you use a bad word is typically a moment that follows right after something you didn't like. You hit your finger with a hammer. Or your car breaks down. Or something where it's the last thing you needed at the worst moment. And out of your mouth comes something blah, that you really didn't want to say. Now, in those moments, you actually have an opportunity for good work. And this is something I want to make sure you understand. A good work is not going down to the soup kitchen. That's one of them, maybe. But that's not the only way you do good works. Good works include just not speaking in profanity anymore. That's a good work. Why? Because it accomplishes everything Paul just said. It reflects glory upon the masterwork of God who created in you a new spirit that knows better than to do that anymore. And the before and after change is a testimony to the world. It brings glory to God. People who knew you before would say, you know, you used to speak like a sailor. What happened? That's like somebody showing you the Mona Lisa. It just gave opportunity for someone to say, man, what changed? How did that happen? So that buffet are opportunities like that, big ones, small ones, in every day of your life. You can eat as much of this as you want. The more you eat, the stronger you become spiritually. The better you know the chef, so to speak. The better you know Christ. The more blessed you'll be for serving Him. And by that same token, friends, when you pass up something, when God puts in your path an opportunity to do a work of service, to do a work of giving to missionaries, to do some work of prayer for someone who says, would you pray for me? And you all forget about it because we all do, right? When you pass up that buffet item, well, your, your salvation is not at risk. You know, God's not mad at you. You just lost an opportunity, that's all. Now, the good news is this buffet goes a long way. Right? You keep walking the line and until the day you die, there's always another dish. But the reason that we ask for service in a church, in fact, the reason churches shouldn't hire out for basic services is because we don't want to outsource your sanctification. Right? 
We don't want to hire someone else to cut the grass because that's a service opportunity for someone to take an item off that buffet and gain the blessings thereof. And we don't want to hire janitors for the same reason. We ask congregations to serve in those things because that's their opportunity to do the thing that they were created in Christ Jesus to do. Now, there'll be times in life when God asks you to deal with something in your life, to do a change in work in your life. But it won't be the thing you want to change. But you'll find something else you're willing to do that's a token that you tell yourself is a good work, that you tell yourself God will be pleased with, and you just substitute. God, you wanted me to give money to that missionary? I like my money, but I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll take him to lunch. Well, if that's not what God's asking you to do, friends, well, you might as well save your money even for lunch because it's either obey Christ or you get no credit. It's like bringing a sack lunch to the cafeteria. right? It's not going to help. And if you're thinking that your own personal sacrifices must add up to something for God, remember the words that God spoke through Samuel the prophet in 1 Samuel 15:22 when he said, "Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice." So you cannot tell God what he values, you cannot tell him what you should be able to do, you can only obey him or not. So there are a lot of good things we could do, but the good things that we are to do are the ones he has prepared beforehand. And yes, our free will has a role in this matter. You can choose from the things he's appointed, or you can choose to do your own things, which gives you no credit, or you can choose to do nothing, which obviously gives you nothing either. But you should be doing what he's asked. And all of this makes perfect sense when you consider that God also chooses how he gifts us. Right? Spiritual gifts, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 14, they come to us as a function of his will as well. You cannot wish or desire for some particular gift. You can't bring it upon yourself with some incantation. You get what he gives you. And some believers are given buffets with glorious works to perform. Men like Martin Luther, men like Jonathan Edwards, Charles Spurgeon, Billy Graham. God equipped those men with great gifts of oratory and leadership and courage and biblical insight. He put them at a point in time in history and in a place on the earth so that all of those things would just come together in a powerful work of God. They brought Christ's glory through history-changing works. And, of course, they also had to face a lot of burdens and personal sacrifice and trial and testing. They had an incredible buffet set for them, but, friends, they still had to pick up a tray and they still had to walk the line. I wonder how many people are of that type who didn't follow as God prescribed, and we just don't even know their names. But others of us, and I would think obviously most of us, would have buffets that we might consider ordinary, common works, like moms and dads raising godly children, believers volunteering at church to mow the grass, or to print bulletins, or to play music, or to change diapers. Or retirees sending in small checks to missionaries on a regular basis, or parents sending children across the world to be witnesses in distant, dangerous places, or missionaries dying in lonely, forgotten villages. Those men and women had far different buffets set for them, at least in the sense of the specific works, but they too had to walk in faith. They too had to go through the line. They too had to say no to what they preferred and to pick up whatever cross God put in front of them. Martin Luther or Billy Graham could not walk the path that God has put you in. They could not do the works that are in your buffet. And likewise, you could not do theirs. But everyone, friends, according to Scripture, has equal potential to be blessed, equal potential to be rewarded. It is not as though your buffet determines just what may come of it. Only your obedience does that. 
You aren't graded against other believers. You're only graded against your own potential. But one thing is true, friends. You were created to walk in good works. No Christian, no Christian has the option to say no to the buffet. You might ask, well, how do I know what's on my buffet? How do I know if I'm doing the right kind of works? I'm busy right now, but now I'm wondering, should I be doing different things? I don't know. (laughs) The answer is, we don't know. Not until you start doing something. I'm fond of saying God does not steer a stationary object. And by that I mean, you have to begin serving somehow. And by service, I don't just mean in the simple sense of coming to this building once a week and doing something. I mean, that's fine. That's one way. But in your family life, in your home or workplace, even in your heart and mind, what comes out of your mouth, what thoughts you entertain, these are all aspects of work that ultimately come to the same outcome. They glorify God because they show a change. What is it for you? I don't know. But try something. And you'll know if it's you or not. It's like sampling a dish. You'll know if it tastes good or not. You'll understand if it fits or not. You know, I think there's a, a certain romanticizing of being a preacher, the thought of standing up in front of people and talking, and there's certainly some enjoyment in it. But it sometimes attracts people because it's the visible place where we see service so often in a church. And so I'll have sometimes people come to me and they say, I want to be a preacher, Steve. I can preach. I can teach. I'm like, okay, let's see. Turns out, no, they cannot. <laughs> Turns out the last thing they should be doing is preaching or teaching, right? And when someone comes to that, to help them move past that, you just have to redirect that energy and say, Look, friend, you may have a desire for something that's not on your buffet. Let's not waste time with that because it'll be of no good to anyone. It'll never work out. It'll never bless God. It'll never come to pass. If you can redirect that energy to where God has you, not only will it be a blessing to you, but you'll enjoy it. It will resonate because it'll match your gifting with opportunity and God's will, and it'll just feel right. And you'll never have a second doubt about it. So, friends, try something. Make changes in your life. Seek for His will. Pray about it. Wait for Him to reveal it. Look at what the results are. If it bears fruit, keep going. One thing I know I'm not supposed to do is take care of small children. I've tried it. It's not my gift. I love little kids. I just don't want to take care of them. Is that okay? Can I say that publicly? And it's a... So you will come to know the general direction you should go when you see your gift intersecting with opportunity resulting in fruit. That's a good way of knowing when you're in the right place. It may change. Seasons in life may dictate a change in where we work. These things are not static. But most of all, friends, the fruit that you're seeking above any else is your own sanctification. Your first love with Christ needs to grow. You need to see in you a desire to serve growing, a desire to know Him more, to see yourself becoming more like Him. If those things are not evident in the work you're doing, may I submit to you, you're just busy. You're not actually doing good works. If you don't find your passions in life changing, your desire for sin reducing, at least in some sense, at least over some period of time, then go back to square one and redirect your time. And then as you serve the Lord, do you notice in your heart a joy both in yourself and in the response of those you serve? That's actually one of my best indicators. If the people you're serving don't like your service, you're probably not in the right place. They see you and they start running. You offer a Bible study and no one signs up. I mean, those are clear signs. I mean, if something's not clicking, something's not working. You're not in the Lord's will. And please don't take these rules of thumb as gospel. They're imperfect. You can't say just because you host one Bible study and it goes poorly that you're not cut out for it. If that were the case, I never would be standing here right now. Okay? But you know that over time, these things start to line up in a way that does give you an indication. 
And the more you do of what God has prepared for you, the more blessed you will be, both now and in eternity. I'll tell you my own experience is that the more I have sampled from this buffet of opportunity God has set before me, the greedier I get for what's on that buffet, the more I want what it's doing in my own life, the more I see the better life is. And you know what else I found? I lose interest in eating anywhere else, to sort of take the analogy too far. I don't want what the world's serving. I don't want to make up my own good works. I don't want to do things that don't please God. I don't want to waste time with things that are just dissipation, that are just wasted time. My wife and I were talking this morning. She was showing me a video on YouTube where they matched up a song to a bunch of clips from a bunch of movies. And I know a little bit about how that kind of work is done on software. And I can tell you that was hours and hours and hours of time to make some stupid little YouTube video that who knows who watched it, but who cares? And I'm not judging someone's use of spare time. What I'm saying, though, is simply this. You only have so much time. If you're stingy with it and it goes to frivolous things like that, what didn't it go to? It's like you got out of line and you went and you sat in the corner of the restaurant and you opened up your sack and you had a dry, crummy peanut butter sandwich for lunch when you left behind fabulous food in the buffet. Stuff like that just amazes me, what we'll waste our time on. No Christian has the option to get out of the buffet line. Because Paul says, we were created for that very purpose. So if you're just nibbling at the buffet of good works, you're missing out on something special, and more to the point, you're in sin. If you are not serving Christ in the good works He has prepared for you, you are not in His will. You are not pleasing God. And exactly what excuse do you have for God when you face Him on your judgment day and you are found to have been sitting on the sidelines for some or all of your time on this earth. What are we going to tell him? What are we going to say? What's our excuse? Football was on? Take an inventory of your life. How much of your life is absorbed in the things of life that are not what God wants you to do? No one can judge your works. That's between you and God. But you can't pursue your own agenda in life. You weren't saved because God said, you know, heaven just won't be heaven unless I get that person up here. God saved you because you had a job to do for him in the course of this new life he gave you you got to go do it there's no option here but friends it's all good even as i admonish us to do it don't forget it's all good you'll love it you'll receive joy from it god will be blessed by it others will be blessed by it you'll be rewarded for it it's all good but what we have to be willing to do is tell ourselves that the thing we think is better here and now is not going to be better in the long run. And that it's a worthy sacrifice to put God's needs above our own, to take on the works He's prepared rather than the ones we choose for ourselves. As Jesus said in one of the Gospels, put your hand to the plow and don't look back. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank You for the opportunity to serve a loving God, the Creator of the universe, who needs nothing from us, who has all power and might, all wisdom within His own grasp. And yet he condescends to the likes of us to ask us to serve him so that he could be glorified through our good works. What can we say to a God who has done that for us? Can we say no? Can we turn a blind eye? Can we spend time in fruitless pursuits? I ask, Father, that each of us in our own walk would be encouraged. Encouraged to know that there is, in fact, a a recipe for us that you have presented to each of us a life of works to be done in your name. It's an exciting opportunity, Father. It's, it's, it's a life that is incomparable to any we could create for ourselves.
Give us a hope, Father, and a desire to find it and to do it and to please you through it. Help us as a church, Father, encourage one another as long as today is called today to do that same thing. We pray this in full confidence, Father, that by your spirit you will lead us. And we pray it in the name of Christ who has saved us. Amen.